This morning, we want to talk about some difficult subjects. We get into a difficult time in Peter's life. We get into Jesus being mocked and beaten as we sang about this morning. And, and these can be just heavy subjects, especially for a weekend or a week like Thanksgiving. But really, these form the foundation for our ability to give thanks and what we are thankful to God for because of what he's done. But this morning, as we look at Peter, we come to the topic of failure. How many of you like to fail? No, one time very few hands go up. Failure is, is a challenge for us because we think in terms of fail or success, right? In school, from early on, what, what do you get? You get grades, right? And there are certain grades that are passing, certain grades not so much. It means you get to see that teacher again the next year. But um, we, we live in a pass or fail world in so many ways. In business, you can start a business or be in business. And we see businesses succeed. They pass the test. We see businesses fail because of a whole variety of different things. And so failure is something we're acquainted with and often trying to avoid because it never feels good. It never is what we want. There's a story of some firemen. It was 1978 in England. There was a fireman strike. And so they had um, the British Army taking over emergency firefighting. And on January 14th, they were called out by an elderly lady in South London to rescue her cat. So this is a, a serious thing. They arrived with impressive haste, very cleverly and carefully rescued the cat, and started to drive away. But the lady was so grateful, she invited the squad of heroes in for tea. So they went in for tea and spent some time with the lady. It was just a wonderful afternoon. And then driving off later with fond farewells and warm waving of arms, they ran over her cat. (laughs) Now, (laughs) some of you are like, I can't believe he just told that story in church. It's a cat, people. It's, um, <laughs> and I love cats, but, but that's failure, right? I think that would be chalked up as not a win, but as a failure that day. And we can laugh about that particular one, but so many of our failures in life we can't laugh about. When was the last time you failed God? Has anyone in here ever failed God? Yeah, if you've sinned, you've failed God. And so just think, when was the last time you failed God? When was the last time you failed to represent Him well? When was the time before that? And for me, those come often. And and as we all deal with sin in our lives, I'm like, oh man, I don't like to think about that. Because that's thinking of failure and thinking of, of ways that I have not honored my Savior. That I have not followed Christ well. And this morning, as we, we will look at, at two examples, we'll look at the example of Peter that Luke intentionally compares to the example of Jesus. It's hard to see because we relate with Peter. We can relate with the failures. But the story of Peter didn't end here. And I want to look at that today because the story is that, yes, Peter failed and Jesus succeeded, but because of Jesus' success, Peter can be restored. That's the real story of the morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We'll be starting at verse 54. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one under a chair right around you. We'd love for you to take that. If you don't have one at home, take that with you home. It won't be stealing or anything. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's word. But if you remember where we were at last week in our story, last week was the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus was praying and Jesus was challenging his disciples Pray that you won't fall into temptation. 
right after he had said, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. Satan is going to test you. He's going to try you. So pray. Pray diligently. Pray hard that you won't fall into temptation. And we saw the disciples there not pray and fall asleep. And Jesus praying with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and today we get the results of that. We get to see how that works out beyond that. Because then after that prayer, we know the mob came from Jerusalem and just right out from the valley, the 15, 20-minute walk, and they arrested Jesus. Peter missed a guy's head, got his ear. He, Jesus healed it, you know, all that scene. And Jesus gets carted away and arrested. And it can feel to the disciples like the dream is over. This is done I guess we followed the wrong guy for the last three years and wasted our lives. And so many of them scattered. All except two, it looks like. And so we come to today, and now Jesus is being taken to the trials, and he's being taken to test it. But we're going to see that it isn't just Jesus that's tested, but it's Peter and Jesus that are tested. They're both on trial in the text today for different results. And so point number one in your notes, Peter's failed test. And so we're going to look at the first section, and this is Peter's chance. This is Peter's test. Do you remember what Peter had just said? Jesus told him he was going to deny him. What did Peter say? He said, no, not me. (laughs) The other disciples, yeah, between you and me, they, they might. But not me. I'm never, never going to deny you. I will never walk away. The same Peter that in the garden was sleeping instead of praying. And not preparing, as Jesus said, you're going to be sifted, prepare. And Peter couldn't do it. And he's sleeping. And so we have this man here that thinks he's not going to fail, thinks he doesn't need to pray to get God's assistance to not fail. And so we see a proud man, a proud, impetuous Peter at the beginning of this trial. And so we come to verse 54. Then they seized him, speaking of Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Keep in mind, still middle of the night, okay? So middle of the night, they're coming to the high priest's house. And we know from comparing the Gospels, they probably went to Annas, the former high priest first, and then to Caiaphas. And this probably takes place in Caiaphas's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, now before we, we really, really hate Peter in this story, understand all the other disciples, they've scattered. But Peter's, he's trying here. He's really trying. He's following. He's staying close. No, I said I wasn't going to walk away. And so he actually passes his very first test here. And he stays with Christ and he follows him. The high priest's house is the place where Jesus' first couple of trials are going to take place. First couple of tests in the middle of the night when legally they should not have happened at a place That is the high priest's residence, which should have been a holy place, a place where people could have come for for spiritual counsel, could have come to draw close to God. And instead, it became a place of mocking God and denying God and beating God. And here they come in the middle of the night because they are racing to get this execution done as quickly as they can. They have a plan and they want to get rid of Jesus. And this is their opportunity. And besides that, we have a Sabbath coming up where we honor God's commands, so we need to kill this man before we honor God's commands. Do you get the irony? The sick, sad irony? And so that's the setup in verse 54. And then we see really three movements that I want to point out of this test. The first is verses 55 through 60, the bulk of the story. 
the test has failed because of commitment to, because commitment to self outweighed commitment to and trust in Christ. It's a lot of words, but I, I want to understand this because I think it's the same for us today. The test has failed because commitment to self outweighed commitment to God. Protecting self outweighed trust in God and trust that God could handle it. So let's look at the story and see, see where his pride left him, where his commitment to self left him. Verse 55, And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And, and the picture here is that back then the houses, especially if you were well off, the houses were built around a courtyard. Sometimes there would be some animal stalls on one side of that courtyard. But this courtyard became sort of the common area for the house that was built around it. And so Peter comes into the high priest's house. He's in the den of the enemy. And he's there trying to figure out what's going on. And he joins in at the fire. The servant girl has lit a fire and, and there, it's in the middle of the courtyard. And Peter sits down among them. He joins them. Verse 56. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, which means to scrutinize, to really carefully look at somebody, looking closely at him said, this man was also with him. She says, I, I, think, I think, Peter, I, I think this man was with Jesus. I, I, he looks familiar. I've seen his face. And so Peter's response was the major first test that he had. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And even to read that brings chills to me. See, Peter took the easy way out. He said, you were with him. And he says, I don't, I don't know him. I don't know him. And he thinks that's going to be done. And, and, you know, so one of the questions we have to ask as we come to this is, why would Peter do this? And, and I think we come back to fear and self-protection. Fear of what might happen to him. Now, there's no indication the disciples are being charged here or chased or pursued. They just want Jesus. But our minds just run away with us. And so this is a time of fear. What if they find out I, I was with him? What if they find out I was a disciple? And so fear took over. Worry about what the servant girl would do. What impact this relationship with Jesus might have on him. Would he be arrested? Would he be ridiculed? Would it lower what people around him thought of him? And so Peter took the easy way out. I don't know him. Simple words that we may think have no impact. But he denied the Messiah. He denied the man that he had just pledged his allegiance to. And so we get to verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. And now it's not just you know him, but you're one of, you're one of the disciples. And so Peter then answers, and, and um, got to get the right verse here. Um, he says, but Peter said, man, I am not. I'm not one of them. I'm not even in relationship. And he's denying Christ. He's denying the disciples now. And then we come to the third denial. And these are just coming quickly. Luke, Luke just puts them all together so we get the weight of what's happening here. And after an interview, interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. And, and the, the nature of this particular accusation, it's, it's much more insistent. It's much more, much more sure of himself. 
And he says, surely you're one of them. And in fact, you have one of those Galilean accents that we hate. So the Judeans and Galileans had different accents and the Galileans were looked down on. And so this was an accusation of, yeah, you're definitely with him. You're one of his people. And Peter in verse 60 says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. You're crazy. You're not making sense. I don't even, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And Peter's realization started. The prophecy came to mind. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But with this third denial, Peter's denial is more emphatic. It, it's the, I, I, are you kidding me? In, in other gospels, we know that he was swearing. And he was saying, I swear I am not. And bringing curses on himself as, if this is true. And what we see is a progression of sin. At first, it's just, I don't know him. Then it's, no, I'm not even with him. I, 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 and, and, I don't, and then now it's, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he's cursing himself. And sin is getting deeper and deeper as he's, he's stuck in the tentacles and the web of that sin. It's progressing. And that's how it works with us. When we take a little step of sin, when we take a step to deny Christ with our sin, and, and make no mistake, every time we sin, it's a denial of Christ and what he's done. A denial of his character and what he's done. A denial of his work in our lives. And, and so we can, we can just take a little step of sin and, and if we ignore that and if it doesn't prick our hearts and we don't repent, then it gets a little deeper and a little deeper and suddenly we're knee deep, waist deep, neck deep in sin and we don't know what to do. And Peter here is neck deep. He has just denied the man that he said he never would who was being tried in the same courtyard or in the room just off the courtyard. And so we get to the second point, the painful realization in verses 61 and 62. The painful realization. So at the end of 60, and immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed because Jesus has said, you will deny me before the rooster crows. And in verse 61, and the Lord, speaking of Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. That had to be the most painful look in human history. Because Peter just finishes, curse me if I know him. I know nothing. And the cock crows and he looks over and sees Jesus and Jesus looks at him. And this is worse than any mom stare. Now, there's all kinds of conjecture as there often is. What kind of look was it? I actually think it was probably a look of sorrow. A look of sorrow and pain. Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter, my friend. Do you know what you just did? And at that moment, Jesus gave that knowing look and the stinging pain, a pain you will never forget, shot through Peter. And and I, I bring that up because I think that is part of what God uses to change Peter into the man he needed to be. And so we see in 62, Peter's response, and he went out and wept bitterly. He ran away. He was shattered. He was in tears. His nerve had failed. He had let Jesus down. He was now confronted by his own weakness. And village, when we sin and when we, when we deny Christ with our actions in that way, we need to come to this kind of realization. We need to come to a realization that Jesus is looking at us and we have failed him. 
And, and I, I'm not trying to, to like get us all down today and say we're failures. But we need to know when we failed God and we need to appreciate the seriousness of that. We need to feel what Peter did where he was shattered and he left and wept bitterly because that was the process of reconciliation, the beginning of that process, because this was repentance. Repentance always starts with being shattered by what we've done. We've talked about this before, right? You can get an apology that says, well, you know, I'm sorry if something I said hurt you. Right. Right. Compare that to an apology that says, I know that what I said was wrong and it was hurtful. I should not have said that. Please forgive me. Completely different. This was the second. This was true remorse. This was repentance. This is different from Judas. And I think there's some interesting comparisons there. Judas wept, but that was out of, oh no, what have I done? And there wasn't a repentance there. And he went out and killed himself. And we're going to see Peter had that remorse and that repentance, and he went out and wept, but then he rejoins the apostles. And Jesus restores him. All is not lost. But at this moment, we see Peter, that he had put self above discipleship. He had put his own self-protection above following Christ. He didn't trust Jesus to protect him. Jesus could have still protected him at the fire. He could have protected him with these accusations. But he impulsively said, I need to protect self. Now, now as we look at our lives, don't we do the same thing? I mean, let, let's just get real for a minute. Much of our response to people is protecting self. Somebody attacks you, what do you feel like doing? I'm going to attack back. Somebody says something that isn't quite true, although usually it hurts more if there's a little bit of truth in it. And we fight back with our words and we attack back and we, we, we tear them down or we self-defend We are people that protect ourselves. And that's our our natural bent. You know, if, if, if you get hit coming out of our driveway this afternoon and you're turning left and a car sideswipes you, I can guarantee that every other Sunday you're going to look a little extra harder. That's self-protection. It's something built into us that's not always negative. But when it comes to self-protection of spiritual things and of our sin and, and of, of being caught in our sins, This is what kept Peter from walking with God. He needed to protect himself from these accusations, and so he lied. Just a little little fib. Jesus will never know. And he found out that it's a lot easier to fall than he thought. His empty boasts were just that. And the pressure of others and the fear of others melted him. How easy is that for us, for that to be us? Do we ever find ourselves not wanting to be identified with Jesus? Are we ever embarrassed that we're Christians in this world? Here at church, it's easy. It's okay to go out in the gym at the potluck and say, you know, I'm a follower of Christ. Good. Yeah. It's harder to say the opposite here. But what about tomorrow when we go to work? What about... When we're in front of our coworkers, what if a coworker sees a Bible on your desk that you forgot to cover up? And he says, Oh, what's that? How do we respond? What about the coworker that's going to say, What did you do this weekend? Well, you know, I, I volunteered at a nonprofit on Saturday. 
We can self-protect. We can self-protect with the best of them when we're afraid of what that means. What if someone asks, why is Christmas so special to you? We have a choice at that point. Do I answer about the lights and the gifts and the cool music that shouldn't be played before Thanksgiving? I know some of you. Or do we say, Christmas is amazing because God Almighty sent His Son to be born and live a perfect life and die for my sins. That's why Christmas is amazing to me. Because God showed up and didn't just leave me alone. So we need to learn from Peter here. He was just trying to fit in, warm himself by the fire, not stand out, not be a follower of Christ at that moment because it wasn't convenient. But I've got to tell you, if we fit in in this world, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because there's not a lot of good to fit into right now. But Peter's story isn't done here. And, and, and I want to, you might say, well, that's all the verses you have there. But I want to think through other verses in Scripture. His story isn't over. And let her see, God uses Peter's failure to create a more effective servant. Paul, God uses Peter's failure to create a more effective servant. As we look at this story, we, to learn from it, we've got to see what goes on after it. Think back to verse 32. Do you remember 22:32, When we talked about it, the prophecy? But I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he's saying, I, I, I'm praying that your faith won't fail completely, that you'll come back. When you've turned again, when you've repented, you're going to be valuable to the kingdom. You're going to be valuable to your brothers. That is an amazing prophecy Jesus gave Peter ahead of time. And I wonder if as he's running away and as he's weeping and as he's realizing he's failed his best friend, I'm wondering if that doesn't start to percolate in his head where he says, you know what? Jesus said, I I actually still have a future with him. That I will strengthen my brothers if I return. Now, maybe it took a little bit of time, but this was part of Jesus encouraging him before it actually happened. So he didn't lose heart. Village, we all will fail. We all have failed our God. But don't lose heart. He is waiting for us to repent, to draw even closer to him, and to use us in even greater ways for his work. All is not lost when we fail. And that's the story I want us to get out of Peter. In Acts 2.14, and and you can just read all of Acts, but especially Acts 2, and just watch what Peter's role is. This is just a a few months later. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So it's the day of Pentecost. There's people all around. Peter leads the charge, and he leads the tribe that's going to be bold for Christ. And he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. And he goes on and shares the gospel. This is no longer a man that's self-protecting and afraid of what people think and afraid of the consequences. He will be thrown in jail for this. He will be called to stand trial for this. But now he is a different man. And I think it goes back to this denial. Because God is going to use his denial to chip away the pride and the edifice that is keeping him from being the servant God wants him to be. And sometimes, guys, it takes failure to do that if we respond in a repentant, godly way. 
I can remember my mom growing up and, and whatever it was, whatever we would do, her, her answer was, well, you, you can't change that. That's already happened. But what can we learn from that? And that doesn't mean there wasn't punishment for certain actions. <laughs> Rightfully so to my brother and sister. But um, <laughs> I still remember that because an accident would happen and I would be fearful. Oh, no. What? And, and it was always, well, what can you learn? What can you learn? And for Peter, as Jesus lovingly restores him, the answer is, what can you learn? How can you change where this isn't you anymore? See, failure can be a way to growth if we let it be. Judas didn't let it. Peter did. And Peter ended up being one of the boldest voices for the gospel in the early church. His story was not finished at this trial. Praise God. Failure is not what finishes our story with God. It's what God does after that failure. Don't ever let Satan paralyze you with the thought, I am no longer worthy of the king because I failed him. Don't ever let Satan paralyze you with that. Because Jesus died on the cross to make sure that didn't have to happen to make sure restoration could happen and those sins could be paid for and we can be new creatures in Christ. This was part of the process for Peter to mature. Now, I'm not saying I'm glad he denied Christ, but God will use even what Satan intends for evil, he will use that for his purposes. It's amazing. And God used this process to mature Peter, to help him become wiser, a wise, repentant follower of Christ rather than an impulsive man who charges in. Will we repent when we fail? Will we come to Christ and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, let me serve you again? Failure is only failure if we stop. I can remember learning to ski. And um, people I thought were my friends took me to, to ski. And um, they didn't let me go on the bunny slope. They just put skis on me. And this was in high school, and they took me to one of the harder runs and, and said, go that way. That's why I said I thought they were my friends. And I start going that way, and I fall. And they're like, yes, you're learning. I'm like, yeah. and, and throughout the next hour, they, they, were, they were with me, but they just let me fall. And, find, and they said, you've got to fall to learn. And one of my, my friends said, if you're not falling, you're not learning. I'm like, oh, shut up. <laughs> And I got to the bottom and I went into the um, lodge for a while rather than back up again. But you know what? By the end of the day, I was able to ski. I got back up, tried it again, and, and they, they were my friends. They weren't trying to hurt me. But their point was, if, if you're not trying, if you're not really pushing that a little bit, you're not learning how to ski. And they, they, they taught me to get back up and to keep going, and that's where growth happens. The same is true spiritually. Some of you might be sitting here this morning thinking, I blew it this weekend. I denied Christ this weekend with my actions. What do I do? I can't believe I'm in church and I sing these songs and, and I feel like I don't even mean those. What you do is repent and say, God, I failed. And we admit it. We see the realization that Peter had and we come to him and say, I failed, but you haven't, so please forgive me. And I will follow you. That's the lesson 
of Peter's failed test. The story goes on, and Luke now paints the picture of Jesus at the same point in time. In fact, they probably overlap, but Luke is telling one and then the other. And so so now we have Jesus at the same time being tested as well. And we see that Jesus' test is victoriously passed. He doesn't deny what God is doing. He gives in to God's will. He stands for truth in the most difficult of circumstances. And so we come to 63 to 65 in letter A on the other side of your notes. Jesus allowed self to suffer for the surpassing importance of God's plan. That's a pass. Jesus allowed self, himself, his body to suffer for the surpassing importance of God's plan. Compare this to Peter's self-protection and putting self above Christ. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Keep in mind, the trials are happening. These men are supposed to hold him and protect him as he's waiting trial. But they're like, hey, we got a little time on our hands. And they begin to beat Jesus and mock him. And this should hurt our hearts as we read this. It should tear at our hearts. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is that that struck you? Thought of getting volunteers and showing you this one. We won't. (laughs) But think of the kids game Blindman's Bluff. No, they don't go hitting each other, but you put a blindfold on and someone touches them or something. You're like, okay, who did that? They're doing this to Jesus, except they're wailing on him and they're beating him and saying, okay, you say you're a prophet. People say you're a prophet. Who just beat you? And they're mocking him and they're treating him as a child's game while they bring him close to death. And they said many other things in verse 65 against him, blaspheming him. So they're insulting, blaspheming. We know from the other passages they're spitting, they're hitting. Jesus is now sport for these men. I got to say, if any of us are there, and if we're God, and we have the power of 10,000 angels at our fingertips, wouldn't it be a little tempting to end this? A little tempting to just have, you know, a little fist back or something, an angel behind do something to these people. And Jesus stands there and takes it. Because he's willing to sacrifice what he's going through for the purpose of what God is doing. In Isaiah, we see prophecy of this. In Isaiah 50 and 53, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus passes the test because he doesn't put self first. In fact, he's going to go on and choose to die on the cross even for these soldiers that are beating him. What a Savior, guys. What a Savior. What an example. And Luke is is putting these two stories together to give us an example of what it should look like, what it can look like, but also to, to work on our hearts to say, if Jesus did this for us, how can we not live for him? And we get to the next section, 66 through 71. 
And we see the leader's ignorant realization. Before we had Peter's realization, when Jesus looked at him, now we have the leader's ignorant realization. They realized something, but it was stupid. They, They were ignorant. And then we see with that Jesus' focus on God's will, even in difficult circumstances. Let's read and explain. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, and so let me just set the picture. Throughout this day, and this is all happening in one day, Jesus is going to go through two phases of a trial. He's going to go through a Jewish phase, and he's going to go through a Roman phase. And the Jewish phase is going to have three parts. And, and you have Annas, the, the prior high priest. You have Caiaphas, the current high priest. And now the Sanhedrin. And then the Roman phase is going to go through three parts. And so this is just a whirlwind in one day. But one of the reasons why they probably had to do this is during the night, they weren't allowed to have capital punishment trials. They weren't allowed to have that trial. But they did because they were out to get them. And they had come to their decision but now they have to legitimize the, the position they've already come to. And so their day breaks and they're like, hey, let's get the Sanhedrin together. And the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body in the Jewish court system. Or, and so they were the ones that would have to give this. Now, make no mistake, the decision's already been made. Right now, they're just following a plan of how can we make this happen? We've got to dot the I's and cross the T's. And so they're getting the Sanhedrin together. And what they're trying to do is get Jesus to say something that's incriminating. Because they can't kill anyone. They need the Romans to do it. But how do you accuse a perfect man? What do you have on Jesus? And so what they're going to do in this trial is they're going to try to get Jesus to say something that they can twist to incriminate him to the Romans to convince them to execute him. This is twisted. But that's what's happening here. And Jesus is is willingly choosing to go through this. And so they come to the Sanhedrin. They get the Sanhedrin together. In verse 67, we see what some of those, those arguments are as they try to get him to incriminate himself. And Luke just zeroes in. There's more that you can read in the other Gospels. But Luke is zeroing in to the main question, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you God? And and so in verse 67, it says, If you are the Christ, tell us. And that word for Christ means anointed one. It meant Messiah to them in the Greek. And so they're saying, Are you the Messiah? Tell us. And Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you won't believe. Well, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And he's playing with them a little bit. Because their idea of Messiah is different from his. And so they're trying to trap him into their idea of Messiah. And then Jesus in verse 69 says, But from now on, the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they're asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the rebel that's going to overthrow Rome and save us? And his answer is, well, you're not even going to understand this. But here's my answer. He goes, I'm the Son of Man. And the Son of Man in Daniel was a messianic title. And we see that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gave all power and all authority to the Son of Man. And so it actually is more a statement of his divinity. The way that it was used, they would have understood it to Jesus now is is actually saying, I'm not the Messiah like you think, I'm actually divine. 
This is not a man that's shirking away from the trial. This is a man that is speaking truth willingly, knowingly, knowing what's going to happen. And so he uses this title from Daniel. But it's also a title that elevates him as having authority over this court. Because the Son of Man would have authority to judge the Sanhedrin, would have authority to judge them. And in fact, it goes on and says, I'll be seated at the right hand of the power of God, a place of honor, a position where, again, he has authority and will be in judgment on all people. And after dying on the cross and rising again on the third day and ascending to heaven, this is where Jesus is now. Judging and ruling, interceding on our behalf. And so Jesus here He is answering them, but not on their terms. And the claim he's making is, I'm divine. And that's why in the next verse, in verse 70, they say, so they all said, are you the son of God then? Let me get this straight. You you said son of man. And we know from Daniel what that means. Are you really saying you're the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. And different translations will translate that answer in different ways. It's all over the board because it's really hard to translate into English. Because the wording there isn't, well, you know, not really, but that's what you're saying. Because growing up, that's how I read this verse. I'm like, okay, Jesus isn't actually answering them. He's like, well, you you said it. But the the Greek here is, is that this is an affirmation. It's saying, well, you said it, and I can't deny it. Even if you, you don't quite have it right, yeah, you're right. That's what it's really saying. It is as you say, some translations translate it. And so he's saying, yeah, you said it, but you're right. I would agree with that. And you can tell that from 71, right? They said, then they said, what further testimony do they need? So that, at that point, whatever Jesus' answer was, they took it as an affirmation because they said, we've got what we need. We've heard it from ourselves, from his own lips. He's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God. And here's what's interesting. Because this is the leader's realization that he's God, but they're ignorant to the effects of that. They're ignorant to the truth of that. And so they have an opportunity here, if they really understood Jesus as God, they have an opportunity to repent and fall on their knees and worship. And instead, they want to kill him. And so it's an ignorant realization that's almost right, but not quite. But again, we see Jesus' dedication and focus on doing God's will. He could have remained silent and they would have had nothing. They would have nothing for the Romans. But instead, he speaks what is needed for the next phase to begin and for him to head to the cross. Don't miss that. That is staggering. God is still in control. He's been in control the whole time. And he speaks what is necessary to do God's word. And so that's why letter C, Jesus willingly becomes the suffering servant so we can be saved. Peter protected self, put self over walking with God, and eventually through his reconciliation, through his repentance, would be the servant God wanted. But Jesus is giving this example that he, that he, he is the suffering servant. He becomes the suffering servant so we can be saved. And in this moment, Jesus becomes our certain salvation. 
and affirms that he is the one. The whole time, Luke here is trying to make a case that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God Almighty. He came to save us and to bear our sins on himself. And at this moment in Luke's writing, it's like, mic drop. He is God. He is who he says he is. And we compare this to Peter. Peter failed and Jesus succeeded. But God turned Peter around. Peter lied to protect himself, but Jesus spoke the truth no matter the consequences. He spoke his way to his death. But Peter would become the vocal spokesperson that Jesus was. Peter repeatedly puts self ahead of following Christ, but Jesus gives no thought to self, focus on what God wants him to do. And in the end, Peter would become like Christ and do the same. Peter ran and Jesus stayed. But Jesus restores Peter on that beach a little bit later. As we look at these two stories, two things I want us to get out of this. Number one, I want us to be in awe of what Christ has done for us and that he willingly went to the cross. And I want that to to dive deep into our hearts, that truth to dig into our hearts and affect us in ways that nothing else does. That if Jesus did this for us, how can we not serve him? But I also want us to learn from Peter and to learn that any of us can and will and have fallen. And we we fail, but that does not have to be the end of the story. And Peter's example, yes, in the moment wasn't good, but if you look at the whole, it is a great example of restoration and repentance. Village, there is no failure in your life that's deep enough where God can't reach you. Not one. Peter denied knowing Christ, denied him in his presence while Jesus is looking at him. And there's, there's nothing you can do that gets you away from God's love and grace. Nothing. And this morning you can repent and come to God and he will forgive and he will restore and he will bring you into a place of being effective for him. Let's be servants that follow Jesus, that that die to self and find ways to die to self so that we can be spokespeople for Christ. As we enter Thanksgiving, I want us to be thinking through the sacrifice that he willingly made and being such people of gratitude that it changes our lives and we follow him. Oh Lord God, there is none like you. And we do give you glory. We give you praise. May our lives stand out for you this week. May we stand up for you this week. May we be bold in our faith, even if people ridicule us, even if people don't understand, even if people think we're some silly, uneducated Christian. But Lord, may we stand for the God of the universe that chose to die on the cross for our sins so we can be saved. And may we live in light of that as followers of you. And Lord, we do give you glory because there is none like you. We give you glory because there is no other means to salvation. Lord, this week, may we thank you for that and live lives of gratitude for what you've done, for what you've accomplished, for what you willingly bore. Thank you, God. We owe you our lives. In Jesus' name.